0: This episode is brought to you by Happy Mess. Happy Mess, the kids' art place. Yeah, they do art classes and sensory play and after-school programs and in-school classes and birthday parties and camps. And adult events. Buy tickets to our next paint night or book your own for your next occasion or staff party. Check it out at www.happymess.net. What's www? World Wide Web.
1: This episode is brought to you by ServiceMaster Sea to Sky. A home is more than just a house, and an office is more than just a place to work. ServiceMaster is here to offer a home and business services when you need them the most. ServiceMaster handles water, flood, fire, and reconstruction services. We take on jobs big and small. There's no project we haven't seen before. ServiceMaster, the complete customer experience. Call us at 604-938-0822 or on the web, smc2sky.com. That's smc2sky.com. Service master, sky, restoring peace of mind.
2: This is the Sea Sky podcast, weaving through the issues in Sea Sky country.
1: You to make money Keeping the voters informed
2: <laughs> Keeping the voters informed Is maybe one of the most Important pieces though
0: so. The remuneration on that though Is a little lacking
1: <laughs>
2: Maybe in dollar value But in like, community hobby. contribution yeah, It's yeah. like I don't think you can put A price tag on that Right?
1: See Marcus He's buttering you up right now I like it. She's lobbying she's me. She's a politician. She's lobbying <laughs> yeah, she's, me. When I, you she know be? that she's an incumbent. When <laughs> I
2: have to say, I have to like immediately set the record straight. I am not a career politician, <laughs> despite what the internet wants you to think. Yeah, not yet. <laughs>
1: not yet. You're almost there. Four years. Running for another term? Right? You know, there's, there's no pension in municipal politics, right? Yeah.
2: There's no no, no good reason to stay for longer.
1: <laughs> Maybe you do want to get out, Chad. Do, do you want to use this opportunity to, to recant here? <laughs> <laughs> use this opportunity to recant. Thank you guys for uh, having yeah. me in the pod shed for all of five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I am out. And I'm
2: out. No. Well,
1: welcome to the podcast for another edition of the Sea Sky
0: Podcast. Uh, we've got uh, Jenna Stoner in here. Let's just talk about the attack ads, because that's fun. I think they went after you quite heavy. The elephant in the room, you know, let's, before we get into all the details and stuff, I think everyone knows you mainly because of those ads on, on the internet. If you were thinking you had a, a little bit of obscurity in municipal politics, that, that didn't help uh, at all, really.
2: I don't think it's fun no. <laughs> as a topic to talk about, but happy to start off there for sure. Um, and I'd like to think that people knew me for other reasons as well, not just the attack ads. Oh uh, well, yeah, uh, but, I agree about that. Um, Yeah, it definitely increased my profile. Uh, Squamish Voices stopped sponsoring ads as of July 13th. The Campaign Financing Act kicked in on July 17th, and that would have required them to no longer be anonymous. And so um, I did a quick tally, and, and through the month... Of, four weeks leading up to that July 13th, they spent over $17,000 on Facebook ads alone, the majority of which were targeting me. That is an unprecedented amount of money uh, to have somebody anonymously attack you online. That doesn't include the cost of putting those ads together, the digital design, the prints and mail outs that they put in people's mailboxes. And so it's super disheartening to know that there's that level of political influence in our local municipality, and uh, and we don't know who it is.
0: And I, you wouldn't know why?
2: I mean, I don't know why. No, I don't know who it is. I think we we can think about uh, who they've chosen to attack. Uh, I think that there's only a certain number of projects that have that level of financing behind them and have that level of interest in our community. But I think more broadly, and, and Squamish Voices is definitely like the far end of the spectrum, but there's been a few online commentary uh, blogs and platforms that I think are being funded by large money. And I don't think our community is entirely ready uh, or, or fulsomely prepared to understand how this big money is influencing our small town politics.
0: It's, I'm just surprised. I mean, big money influences politics all the time. I'm just surprised it's now at a municipal level. I mean, we, we were just talking before we started the mics rolling how you are one of seven on a, on a board. I mean, you don't make any influential decisions and municipalities don't have a lot of purview. And if, In the retrospect of the three levels of government don't have a lot of purview So I mean to go after municipal politics And sort of disrupt that I don't understand the motives Of how you want to disrupt that part When you should be spending that money Say on the provincial level or the federal level Because that's where policy is made Whereas on the municipal level The purview is just not there So that's where I'm, I'm confused about the whole yeah. thing But I also want to give you kudos For you know standing up to it And up for re-election and be like F that noise. I'm going to do this anyway because I believe in what I'm doing. So, thank you for being in the pod shed again. And just had to clear that up because I mean, it just seemed like it was disproportionately attacking you, Mayor Elliott, and Doug Race, and then now those two are not running, and you're the last one standing.
2: Yeah. Now Chris Pendyale has gotten a little bit too. A little bit. Uh, Yeah. There's only a few topics that we voted on in in that configuration, and I think if people wanted to really dig into it, they could start to think about who it might be who's uh, influencing that.
1: I don't really see it as an influence. I mean it is an influence. I I see it more as interference. Interference in a democratic process here and an open respectful adult dialogue. Jenna, I I would agree with you. I actually shut that crap down on my feed. I don't see it anymore. I didn't want to see it in the first place because you know me. I'm I if we're going to have we can agree to disagree and we have in many <laughs> In many, I'm conversations nodding my head preview. here. I realize we're yeah, on a podcast, yeah. so me nodding, we, is, yeah, she's, she's <laughs> nodding. We, we've agreed to disagree on different topics, and, and that's okay. But that respectful debate and that dialogue, I believe, brings about better process and really sound decision making. When you have that debate, you have that dialogue, that respectful dialogue, sometimes you even come away going you know what, I think Jenna had a point on this one. And like you mentioned, Marcus, there are seven people in there. We've we've tried to reiterate that to every one of these candidates that we've had in the pod chat up until this point, which is the bulk majority of them, that no one person is responsible for every single decision. You need three others to join your cause or whatever it is you'd like to advance um, to make something happen. So to me, I see it more as interference, rather influence. It is influencing people's decision-making. I think sometimes it's really hard on the internet to kind of separate fact from fiction. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, you know, I've, I've done research and I'm a research." If not, Googling something is not researching. <laughs> you know, you, when you say, oh, I I researched, you know, maybe the budget uh, the District of Squamish and all the pieces. You mean that, that pamphlet we massive, got in the mail? It's a massive document. Simply listening to somebody's view of it on facebook is not (laughs) actually researching that document and And being factually informed
2: yeah and i do want to thank you for for putting it in that category of interference i think i'm a little bit uh, gun shy to call it that much but i i agree with you that i think it, it has definitely impacted i i know it has impacted people's choice to run or not run um and i think that alone like we have the shortest list of candidates i think in 20 plus years running uh, this time around. And I think there might be a few reasons for that. But one in particular is the amount of anonymous online uh, interference that has occurred in the last four years. And I know that for a fact from people who were thinking of running and chose not to and and new candidates who I was uh, trying really hard to encourage to run. At the end of the day, they decided it just wasn't worth it. And that was a big reason why. And so um, no doubt it has had implications, not only on people's decision making about who they might vote for and what their understanding is of going on uh, in City Hall, but also people choosing to run in this election, which I think is really disheartening to hear.
0: And not to take away from the candidates that are running, but I mean, there are some good people who would be very good in these positions who are dissuaded by this. And it, and that's, that's that's the thing that affects us because I mean, the people who would be best suited for these positions who have the brains for it, for the policy. I think that's my issue is I can't go through 400 pages of policy and, and keep my, like, oh, I got to make a decision. What? Uh, you know, those people who be very attuned to this are, are stepping away
1: because of that. and that's that's an injustice for all of us really.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well,
1: Jen will tell you though too, Marcus, you don't you get these lengthy, lengthy reports and these documents that you have to, to have to get through. Part of your role as a counsel is to not only read and be informed, but also to reach out to those you you have trust in that have maybe have more knowledge on a certain subject to get some feedback on what is at hand. So I don't think it's always like, hey, you just got to You got to read 400 pages and you've got to be you got to be in tune with it and you got to make a decision. I think there's so much more than that. And that's why I always feel like you're paid part time. But it's it is a full time gig. I mean, you, it, you I like can't. to
2: call it part time plus. that's uh people ask me how much how much time i put in and it depends on the week but it's definitely a part-time plus gig
1: that's
0: right all right let's look back on your four years of your part-time plus gig and and we'll talk about uh, some of the major issues i think that people are still discussing today and a a lot of them are actually you know we discussed them four years ago when you were up for election and they're still kind of
1: prevailing well Uh, hold on before we even get into that what Who is Jenna Stoner and why are you running again? Well, there you go.
2: Oh, that's a nice place to start. Uh, so, my name is Jenna Stoner. <laughs> that's kind of
1: where I wanted to start this whole time. I understand I mean, he, he wants I, to get right at the elephant. I and, do. Just get know? rid of it. You no,
2: know? just like because Chuck I know the elephant
1: out of the, hey, we don't. There's not enough. We get it. There's not as enough soon, room in the pod. As soon, set soon as someone elephant.
0: clicked on this podcast, the first thing they're going to think about is that, and I want to yeah. hear about that. So, give it's it to out them. Of the way. Get it out of the way, and now get to the juicy bits.
2: My name is Jenna Stoner. You've likely seen my face on your social media feed or inside <laughs> your mailbox. (laughs) (laughs) i am wrapping up my first term as counselor with the district of squamish Uh, it's been an amazing four years to be able to serve this community through what was a fairly challenging term but it's been a hard few years for for everybody i chose to run again in part uh marcus your intro there of there are still some really high priority items that haven't been completed and I don't think I was naive uh, and thinking that I was going to solve everything in four years four years ago. Uh, And I think that there will always be really important work to do. I don't think even in four years time, I will have checked everything off the list. But I do think that there is some really solid momentum on some of the key priorities that I really would like to see through. And I think that I have, over the last four years, developed a strong understanding of how local government works, how council works. Uh, It was a learning curve for me, for sure. And so I think bringing some of that continuity back to the table, as well as the relationships that I've built over the last four years, even as you said, it's it's not just about reading your agenda package, it's about being connected with the people who that decision impacts, who maybe have more information than you as well. Like that's within the community and then also across the region and throughout the province. Are there other communities that have done this that are doing it better? Where can we learn from? And so... I've worked really hard in the last four years to build those relationships up and I think that brings a strong skill set to the table.
1: You talked about your four years on term. You're a new mom, you know, starting in young family in Squamish. How has that changed your perspective with respect to your role in council, council chambers? Maybe some of the decisions that you guys are making there?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, Becoming a new mom has been the most amazing experience of my life, no doubt. Uh, she, my little my little girl is one, year, one years old now. She was born during our term in office. A big reason why I ran the first time around was I was concerned around the climate emergency, the future that children, the next generation, even though I didn't have my own kid, was going to inherit and how we make sure that we're making this community and the world a better place. And so... I already I had that lens going into my first term despite not being a mom, um, and so I don't know if it's necessarily changed my decision-making lenses and values all that much. I think it strengthened a lot of them. Um, I think it has made my life uh, substantially busier, <laughs> and I feel like I'm juggling a lot more, but it's also really taught me the importance of showing up and being present where I am when I'm there. Uh, and so I feel like I've had to like really learn how to show up at my house and be there for my kid. And then when I'm out the door and she's at daycare now, thank goodness I have daycare and I feel guilty every time I say that in this community because uh, I already knew it was a challenge and having lived through it and I, I know just that much more how challenging it is. At the same time, it's I, I show up in council chambers and I'm 110% there in council chambers wearing my council hat because that's the time that I have allocated to that. So I think it's more so it's just changed the way that I walk through the world, but I think the lens that I take to my job is, is similar.
1: The reason I ask is because we, we're, we're growing exponentially. Census over census, 24 plus percent population growth. Um, is hard not to see the development that's happening in Squamish. It affects everything. Everything we've talked about, Marcus, it's interconnected. We cannot talk about one piece of the pie. Marcus will tell you you're going to have to stick your finger in one piece at some point in time here. And looking at the density piece, do you think our growth is, is sustainable? Do you think we continue to grow at the same rate at which we're growing? The downtown densification, are we doing it right? Are we getting it right? And then maybe, you know, kind of reaching out into some of those other areas of Squamish too as well. The VLA lands and or, you know, Chima and or the Crumpet Woods development, but really, I guess, specifically right now, just to development and density in the downtown core. And do you think we're getting it right? And what's your thoughts with respect to the sustainability of the growth that we're currently going through?
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that the rate of growth and change has been substantial in this community. And I think everybody's feeling it. Um, I often equate it to I feel like we're kind of in our teenage years. We've grown tall and gangly, but we haven't filled out yet. And so I think we're living through a really challenging time in our community in that we're feeling the impacts of growth without the without the benefits. Um, There's naturally a lag in the way that development happens in that you see the buildings and you see the people come and it takes a while for the amenities to show up afterwards. So we contrary to what people will say, we do collect money from developers for our amenities, for the pipes under the ground, for the water wastewater treatment plant for community many contributions, like affordable housing and our our Brennan Park facility. But we often don't necessarily collect that money until the building starts being built, that that building permit. And so there's a lag between what people are seeing in terms of growth um, and the benefits that can come with that. So whether we're on the right course, my perspective is we can't stop it from happening. Just the immigration numbers alone into this province, We know that more people will be coming to Squamish. We can't build a wall. And so I think the big question is how do we manage growth? And I think that's what you're trying to get at is are we doing it correctly? And uh, I still believe that holding to the growth management boundary and focusing our growth in existing neighborhoods makes good sense in the long run. I think that's how we build the communities that we want for the future, the communities that are walkable, compact, accessible, transit friendly. Uh, That's important from an environmental perspective. It's also really important from an economically, fiscally prudent perspective because it means that we can make the most efficient use of our resources and our infrastructure as possible. Within our existing growth management boundary in the areas that we have already approved, so oceanfront development, Chikai Fan, Loggers Lane East, we just did a neighborhood plan there, there's approximately enough approved bedroom units for about 11,000 more people. And so I think that that's where we have to be really careful when we talk about expanding outwards, when we already know that there's a lot of growth potential within our existing neighborhoods. And so for me, I think uh, although densif- densification can be challenging, and I think we, ha- we are living through the challenging part of densification right now, I do think in the long term, it's, it's the direction that we want to be going. I don't think that means that we have six story apartments on the VLA lands at all. It means that we have a diverse fo- diversity of housing forms across our existing neighborhoods.
0: So, my follow up to you about that is the coalition. I was corrected, I was calling them a slate, but then they're like, we're a coalition, we're only three. Okay, the did coalition. you figure out what the difference is? No, but the coalition is, is <laughs> I don't wanna, I, I like them. They're good people, okay? <laughs> they're great people, they're I'm people. just All right. curious. Their biggest complaint and what their platform is is that you don't take enough CACs. You don't get enough money from the developers. Is that true or is, is there gonna be a change in that? Or where did they get this perception anyway?
2: Yeah, I think it goes back to there's this lag between what we're seeing being developed and the way that we're able to contri- that we able to collect the money from developers. So, I think another good point here is a lot of the building that we're seeing be- happening right now wasn't approved by this council. I think maybe like a quarter of it. This is like if I do like a quick gut check, was was seen by this council. But a lot of it was rezoned by previous councils. Development permits. Redbridge is a really great example. Like that first came to council in 2007. Uh, it's been through a long iteration and process, and so. There's also a lag in policy. So when a development application comes into the district, say it came in in 2014 and it took six years to get it across the line, we may have updated all of our policies in 2020. So when it was getting across the line in 2020, we had all new CAC policies and we had new ways of collecting money from developers. But that application came in in 2014 and so it has to adhere to the 2014 guidelines. You can't move the goalposts on somebody. And so there's also a delay. So we've done a lot of work in the last few years to update a lot of our policy. Our community amenity contribution policy was updated in 2018. We're now going through an additional review of it at the end of our current term and then the new council will get to see that piece of work and and have their input on it. The DCC bylaw, which is development cost charges, that's the other way we collect money from developers. That one is highly regulated by the province. We can only use that money for things basically that go under the ground, sewer, water, roads.
0: Well, flushing your toilet is important.
2: (laughs) I would say it's actually one of the most important things that municipal government does. It's actually what we're legally required to do. (laughs) Recreation, unfortunately, is not. But we've been advocating to the province to include recreation facilities into development cost charges. That's a whole other story that I'm happy to get into. So yeah, so I, so the DCC bylaws, another one that has been updated and was maybe had gone a few too many years without being updated and we just updated, we just adopted a new one in 2022. So that increases the amount of money that we'll be getting from developers and it actually puts us like pretty high up on the list relative to our neighborhood, neighboring communities around how much money we're getting from developers. But that will only apply to new developments going forward and so i think that that is the challenge where we experienced this big significant growth especially after the olympics and we we weren't prepared as a community in that time we community many contributions were not a thing in 2010 and 2011 like there was nobody in the province that was doing them and so we did see a lot of growth without that level of contribution but i think the scales have really ch- like the weight has really changed on the scales and and we will catch up
0: uh, we're going to have to. I mean, that's the whole platform of some of your opposition. There is like we're going to take our CACs. We're going to get lots of CACs. And we're going to fix Brennan Park, which is yeah. a hundred million dollar project.
2: Well, actually, they've said that Brennan Park will include the library and an arts and culture facility. So it's like probably a hundred plus million dollar project. And I don't. I personally don't know any developer who will put a hundred million dollars down without giving them significant development rights. And so my question continues to be who. Who do they expect to pay for that, especially if they're willing to put pause on the majority of development in our community?
1: 60% of our municipal tax base is currently garnered from residential property taxes. I mean, I'm not going there because that's yours. So I'm going to leave that to you. No, no, so no, I'm, right. just put it, I'm putting it out there. You it out. Okay. You mentioned in that response, lobbying federal government, federal and provincial governments given your four years you you, you've been there you've been in the trenches do you think we are doing a good enough job lobbying the provincial government uh and federal government for that matter for those funds
2: yes i think we have been so in especially if you're talking about infrastructure and and grant funding is that what you're getting at in particular so yeah so i think we are above and beyond other communities in terms of hitting home runs for grant applications so In 2018 we did the real estate facilities master plan which inventoried all of our infrastructure across the district Um, it prioritized and estimated the cost of renewal and replacement of all of that infrastructure we have asset management plans for all of our core utilities so sewer water which prioritize how we're going to upgrade all of those And that means we have projects that are shovel-ready. This is a challenge with federal and provincial government grants, especially for smaller communities, is that you basically have to have a shovel-ready project. You have to have done all the design and the engineering and the planning and be like, here, I'm ready to put shovels in the ground tomorrow. For a lot of small communities, they don't even have the tax base to do the design work and the pre-front work that you need to get a grant application in. Um, So we've actually been extremely successful as a community in terms of being able to get those federal and provincial grants. Where we are challenged is the scope of those grants and the requirements that the federal and the provincial government put on them. And so, for example, we have an $11.7 million federal grant for Brendan Park, uh, which will be a total of a $16.7 million project that's kicking off at the end of this year. It's largely focused on environmental and and accessibility components to the building, though. So um, making the washrooms more accessible, changing some of the counter heights, increasing the programmable space out in the front. Um, which are all really beneficial things. It'll increase the energy efficiency of the building, but it's not going to get us a second sheet device. And I know that that is what people really want to see. And so this is where some of the lobbying comes in around extending or expanding how we can spend development cost charges, for example. So those dollars that we get by bylaw from development um, on recreation facilities uh, so that we have a different pot of money that we can That we can pull from that is not necessarily grant related so there is actually that lobbying effort has been successful the province is currently reviewing how we can appropriate dccs Um, the resort municipalities also have the option to spend their dccs on affordable housing which the rest of us don't have so they we often get compared to whistler and how they have a housing authority there's many reasons why we haven't been able to catch up to whistler but one of them is that they are able to use their DCC money for affordable housing.
1: So can we just like name change resort <laughs> municipality <laughs> of Squamish? Can <laughs> we, we just
0: push you know because we <laughs> have, because
1: we're already paying the gas tax. Like we were already paying the gas prices already reflecting you know this this what do they what do they call a destination <laughs> town or whatever the heck they want to you like can we not just change? Well,
0: one of our biggest industries is tourism. Yeah
1: we're going to tie in with the affordable housing
0: piece because with tourism, we have people coming here and they're coming here, they're riding their bike and they're going home because there's not enough beds or there's not enough ways of keeping them here to spend in town. But if we talk about more beds for tourism, but we also need affordable housing for our workers. We need affordable housing for our low income families. Where do you start with that?
2: Yeah. And this is another piece of the platform that I ran on four years ago and we haven't quite cracked Crack the nut on affordable housing in four years. I'm sorry to say, um, but I I don't know any community that has. Um, this is one of those. I was saying to somebody the other day. I feel like we've kind of pulled off all the low hanging fruit, and now it's all the like really big challenges that are left over. That um, they're slow to progress, unfortunately, because they require everybody at the table. They require multiple levels of policy change. But where we're at, I think even though we haven't solved it, I do think we made really substantial progress in the last four years. Um, I think it's just hard to see because the baseline has gotten that much worse. And so we kind of have like it's a drop in the bucket what we've been able to do, but but it's still a drop. And I think it's important to recognize what has happened. So we have been able to establish a housing authority. That's something that we've talked about for over a decade in this community. And we have it up and running. We have an executive director. That means we have somebody whose full-time job it is to think about how we advance affordable housing in our community, where those partnerships are, public-private partnerships, lobbying to the province. I think we've done a lot of exceptional work at the district, but it's always been off the side of somebody's desk, and so it's been slow progress. So I'm really excited about that uh, housing society and, and where that might be able to go. We have the Spirit Creek building that's about to open, that's 76 units of affordable housing uh, the west winds building 232 affordable seniors units that opened during our time on council that's thanks to previous council too i'm not going to take credit for that that was underway when i came in and um, i was able fortunate enough to give them a development permit but that's about it um, and then we've also through all the development that we are seeing our current community amenity contribution policy prioritizes affordable housing but not just dollars for affordable housing, it prioritizes getting affordable housing units built in those developments. So a percentage of the new units that get approved have to be affordable housing units. And so those are just starting to come online. Um, We've secured over 100 uh, affordable housing units and 300 purpose-built market rental units through development in the last few years. Uh, which are at some form of development permit or building permit stage, and so we're starting to see those being built as we speak. And I think that's really important. Um, I've heard other folks say, "Well, we should just be getting cash contributions exclusively. Cash is king." And I agree to some to some level. The challenge is, as a municipality, we're extremely land poor, so we don't really have. If if we got twenty million dollars to build a building, there's only like we have like three or four pieces of land that we could build a building on Um, and the cost of land is so prohibitive and so um, I actually think it's been a really strategic direction for council to take to get housing units built in developments where we don't have to buy the land Um, the other piece that we've done most recently is for the first time ever we've actually gotten through a rezoning affordable housing units being donated to the affordable housing society so in previous uh, agreements it's the developer that maintains the affordable housing and, and they get the revenue the rent from that over time we've now shifted that and started to kind of set an expectation that for larger rezonings we will expect fee simple units to come into the district and so we can own them we get that rent money and that's what hopefully we'll be able to subsidize the housing authority over time as opposed to our tax dollars
1: probably our two largest industries here in Squamish, building development and recreation tourism, tourism being one of those big ones that everybody wants to focus on all the time. Um, Marcus mentioned it. We we have a bed deficit. There is, there's not enough beds here to house the people who are coming here to recreate. So it's a conundrum. Totally. We've talked to the affordable housing piece uh, for the people who are living here and servicing and working in those jobs that support the rec tourism uh, sector. But, What do we do as a community to increase bed spaces and keep those people and keep those dollars here instead of having them come here driving and driving back, especially when we have a climate action plan that doesn't want us in our vehicles, essentially?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. One uh, conversation that I've had with tourism Squamish many a times, um, and I know it's part of their strategic plan to increase the number of overnight stays basically. And that's where you start to really see the, the greater value of tourism and less of what I often feel is a bit of an extractive tourism industry, where as you said, you have people come up for the day, they ride their bikes, they maybe grab a beer, but then they go home at the end of the day and we're not seeing as much value as we probably could. And so uh, we did approve one hotel during our term, um, downtown, the micro hotel. Uh, hopefully that goes to building permits soon. So there's a the short term rental piece, which I'll get to in a second. But I think that there's there are opportunities to try and incentivize by increasing the amount of number of parcels where hotel is an allowable use in the zone. I think that's one piece that we should really start to look at is where do we want that hotel to be? There was one that was proposed on the edge of of Loggers East neighborhood plan uh, more recently, and that was turned down by council because I I was part of that decision. I just don't think that that was a good location for a hotel. It was kind of just south uh, uh, on the other side of Loggers Lane from Brennan Park and and a little bit south of there. And I don't think that's necessarily where we want tourists. We heard loud and clear from the neighborhood in that area that they didn't want a hotel on the edge of their neighborhood um, so i think we need to be careful about where we think about putting hotel as an allowable use um, there will eventually be a hotel out at the ocean front, but that's a few years off still For in terms of how do we enable more commercial oriented overnight stays in a hotel kind of facility it's we have to look at our zoning that's the that's the first place that we start from a short-term rental perspective is the other one right so from my perspective, short-term rentals are an extremely challenging topic. It's one. It's actually one that I probably one of the topics I found the most challenging of this past term. And I don't think that there is a clear way out. Um, I think where we landed in our first iteration of our regulations was fairly restrictive. You're not allowed to really have a short-term rental unless it's in your primary residence, with the exception of we put out uh, an option for thirty temporary use permits to see. Uh, for those who are really interested in running a short-term rental as a business, then you could apply through a temporary use permit. We set a fee to that. And we haven't had the uptake that I was expecting, given the amount of feedback that I had gotten through the short-term rental process of the number of people who are running short-term rentals. And I don't think we've actually been able to fill those 30 spaces. And so I think that there's an opportunity to go back and look at the fee that we set. Is that... Realistic, And that's where we do kind of the continuous improvement of the policy. I was saying to reflecting on it the other day with somebody in my general theory of practice uh, when I'm sitting in this chair is it's often better to start in a more restrictive space and then open it up than it is to start really broad and open and then close the doors if you've gone too far. And so I think this might be one example where potentially we've we've started off too closed and we need to revisit that policy and open it up a little bit. Um, we also need to get the data and this is this is a really challenging data point to get so part of the initiative around the short- term rentals pieces was the motivation behind it was to get some of those units back into the long- term rental market um, in order to be able to provide for those service industries who came to us and said our workers don't have anywhere to live well, if we have a secondary suite that's being used for short-term rental then ideally it can go back into the long term rental market and I don't know if we've necessarily seen that. Our vacancy rate has increased from 0.1% to 0.4% over that time. (sighs) It's not anywhere close to where we need it to be.
1: We're going the wrong way on that one. I know it's, it's, I I guess what you're saying. I
2: I mean, 0.3% is better than going the other way, right? Like, it's not something to necessarily write home about, but it is a step in the right direction, let's say.
1: But and it really it hasn't been quantifiable. But like it, hasn't it really been quantifiable. hasn't been quantifiable. It's, it's not done what you expected so, it to do.
2: I'm not sure. Tourism Squamish does. I just was recently talking to them, and and they are they have been doing the data collection that we weren't able to as a district. And I'll be honest, like we we didn't have the resources to do that level of data analysis. And I'm so grateful that Tourism Squamish is, um, and so they are compiling that data, and they will bring it back to council. And so I. Anecdotally, I don't think it's had the impact that I wanted it to have, um, but I haven't seen that information. Well, in in other
0: communities, it didn't work either. It didn't work in Tofino. When they had uh, the short-term rentals, they tried to do the same thing with policy to get more long-term rental units into the market, and it didn't work for them. People just took their rental off the market. Entirely. Entirely. So when I saw that happening here, I'm like, I don't know if that's necessarily gonna work if someone wants to do a short-term rental, the fee is, I think, too high. If someone told me it was like $3,000, $3, which is a bit high. Perhaps a hotel model, you have to report how much money you make. and Then, you know, Squamish tourism gets a, a cut of that because you They do already.
2: They're part of the, the MRDT tax. Um, but, but
0: you know what I mean? Like more more yeah. treated like a hotel instead of um, as an individual business. I don't know. Yeah. I, just,
2: yeah. uh, I think part of and again, it goes back to the rationale. I think when I looked at it, what we were trying to incentivize were we were hearing from folks that they really wanted to run a short-term rental business. That was what they wanted to do. We had folks who, all kinds of stories, but for whatever reason, they ended up in a space where it was a large part of their income was to run a short-term rental business. And we heard from Tourism Squamish that we are in a desperate need of of more bed units for for tourists. And so part of that level of $3,000 for somebody who's running a short-term rental business that is... Not very much money, in terms of what you're able well, to. A run business your license
0: and- is much cheaper. Totally. Right. So that that's where I think the disparity comes from. Yeah. If you look at a business license cost and you look at the cost of of a
1: short term rental, there's a big discrepancy there. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a there's a real benefit to the community when it's done correctly. You know, 100%. when you have an owner occupied space and then you're renting out space doesn't necessarily have to be within the actual dwelling itself but you're renting out that space where you actually own and live and reside there there is some some real benefits to community and I think that's one of the this short-term rentals, that home share kind of idea that I really like about yeah. it. Yeah, because And it's they- super
2: nuanced though, right? Like, as you said, like there are some characteristics there that you just pulled out that were really important for you. Mm-hmm. Um, as you see as a responsible operator that that person lives on site, that they're, I don't know, does it mean that they're there while the person is visiting or could they be away and they have, so there's, there's so much nuance to this conversation, and oh, there's totally. so many. Totally, you <laughs> need to do this for an <laughs> hour. Yeah. Right? You want an entire yeah. podcast oh, yeah. on short-term rentals? Well, we'll I'm do, happy we'll to do, go there. We'll I have think. We do that later. What I would like to say is, it goes back to kind of my decision-making lens. while I sit "Is this chair?" I think I appreciate that where we've landed hasn't necessarily gotten us to the perfect space, and so let's be iterative in our policymaking and appreciate that it's we didn't hit it out of the park the first time around. And so, how do we look at that?
1: Yeah, the the VLA lands in the states for our
2: listeners. That's the Veterans Lands Act lands. I like that.
1: (laughs) There we go. Education, right? I mean, this is what this podcast is all about. These interviews are all about. We talk about neighborhood planning and nodes. This is one of those ones that's come up because it's, it's been very contentious, especially in the dangerous. way the landowners were informed around the whole you know possible density of this area. So where do you stand with respect to the VLA lands and, and what's your thoughts on density in the area?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So the VLA lands, as I said, Veterans Land Act lands are in the Garibaldi Estates neighborhood previous council initiated a neighborhood planning process for the Garibaldi Estates region more broadly so not just focused on the VLA lands VLA lands are fairly large lots currently zoned rural residential i believe uh, I should know that but i'm not entirely sure but it's a single family lot uh, on quite a i think it's a half acre of land a portion of the lands that were included in the Garibaldi Estates neighborhood planning process and I think that's a good place to start this conversation is, is the neighborhood planning process and its intention. What I would say I think is the most unfortunate is that this neighborhood planning process in particular got off on the wrong foot and so the, the neighborhood planning processes are a way for us as a community to identify how we want our neighborhoods to change over time. It's meant to be a like really in-depth Informed discussion with people who live there and other residents of Squamish to inform how that particular neighborhood should change. What are the values? What do we want to see? Where densification could maybe happen in the area? What do we want to keep? And what sort of character and culture do we want to keep in that neighborhood? What is? Where do we want our walking paths to go? Where do we want the green space? Where do we want the commercial space? What type of commercial amenities do we want? Where does the childcare go? And so. We did this in Loggers Lane East as well, um, just before, and the previous council did a smaller version for uh, the Wilson Crescent neighborhood. Those other two neighborhood planning processes were, uh, Micro Crescent was actually like relatively quick. uh, Loggers Lane East was, was extended and a little bit longer than expected, but I think was also really successful and resulted in a really robust neighborhood plan at the end of the day. Um, it has a whole suite of policies around how that neighborhood will change and it has values on green space and environmentally sensitive spaces, especially because it's really important from stormwater management perspective. It identifies a new type of neighborhood development called the agri which blends agriculture and like urban agriculture and, and urban development. So really, really interesting work that happened there. And so the next neighborhood on that list, as per the OCP, was Garibaldi Estates because we know that there is development interest in the area, and the neighborhood planning process is intended to be a way for us to get ahead of what the developers want. It's meant to be for us as a community to identify what we want, so that when a developer comes forward and says, hey, I wanna rezone this property, we have a clear list of what it is that we want from them over time. The challenge is that I think with this process, when we then announced as the, as, as the district that we were gonna start this scare the estates neighborhood planning process, Really unfortunately, there were developers who saw that and were like, great, we're gonna go around and we're gonna start buying up land. We don't have the ability to stop people from speculating anywhere in this community and people do it all the time. People had already bought land in the Garibaldi Estates assuming that it was going to change or that they would be able to get rezoning. So we can't stop that speculation from happening. It's really unfortunate that they went door to door giving out letters saying, hey, we're looking to buy your land and we'll consolidate lots. We had never given them any sort of indication that that was going to be the result of this neighborhood plan. We sent a letter to them, a very like stern letter, saying how dismayed we were about their behavior in our community and their wrongful assumptions around what that plan was going to deliver for them. Um, but we can't stop other people's actions. And so It was an unfortunate start to the process because it really, I think as I reflect on it, it eroded the trust between the District of Squamish and our process that we had intended and the residents of that area. And I don't think we ever really fully were able to amend or like rebuild that trust through the process. It's still ongoing, but it kicked it all off on the wrong foot because people were like, oh, the developers are coming. They think that they're going to be able to build six stories on the VLA lands. And that was never actually put out there as an option from my perspective. And so we then did have to do a lot of backtracking and setting the record straight. And specifically to the VLA lands, as I said earlier, I don't see six story condos going up on the VLA lands. I think the conversations that I've had with folks who live in that area, and most recently, uh, they actually offered a tour to the council candidates and, and really to display how valuable that land is from an agricultural perspective. And if that's the value that we want to keep, the VLA lands actually don't covenant the like the the agricultural value of that land at all. There are folks who already live on VLA lands who don't do any sort of farming, um, and if one of those properties sold for whatever reason, you couldn't compel somebody to put fifty percent of their lot into agricultural development. So. I don't know what the right answer is. I really hope that we can get back to having fulsome dialogue and conversation and rebuilding the trust with the community about creating this vision of what we want for that space.
0: You know, I want to commend you on your answer because most of the candidates were like, I want to build there or I don't want to build there. They didn't give that response to how we got here. But if we do get to a point where someone wants to densify because it is near a commercial area, because all the other candidates are like, yeah, Yeah, I want I want to build in there. I don't want to build towers, but maybe duplexes or small condominiums or is that something if further down the road you would consider?
2: Yeah, I think some level of densification in that area is appropriate for sure. I think the conversation that I would like to have is what does that look like and what is what level of densification is appropriate? There is already densification in that neighborhood. There are low story walk up apartment buildings. There are (laughs) townhomes. So when I hear folks say, I don't want densification in a neighborhood that's already slightly densified, brings a lot of pause and question to me. Um, As somebody who lives in a townhouse, I don't think that people who live in townhouses are evil. But I also don't think that people who live in single family homes are evil. I think we have to have options for everybody. I think the intention is to have housing for all that is a really good walkable neighborhood there is really great transit services and so i think that some level of densification in the area is definitely appropriate but i don't know what that looks like
1: yeah i just i you're you're so right just nobody speaks to how we got here
2: can i just reflect on that yeah. for a second and i think that this i mentioned it off the top in terms of it's been a really challenging few years for everybody like covid turned everything upside down but Having sit, sat in this position as a counselor for the last four years, I, I often say to folks, it took me, if I'm being very honest, like two years to get up to speed. Like this is not an easy job. And I, I was involved in the municipality and the OCP development before I ran for council. I thought I knew what I was getting into. And it still took me two years to get up to speed. And then COVID hit and everything got turned around for everybody. But it was also, I'm not saying this to get sympathy, but it was a really, it was really hard to govern when you could not engage your constituency and i I actually think government our government became much more transparent through the pandemic we now have hybrid online meetings you no longer have to come to city hall to participate you can participate from the comfort of your home our sound quality of the recordings is like night and day than what it was before the pandemic like there were there were lots of really substantial improvements to how we run our process the challenge and that I still struggled with uh, through the pandemic and now was people didn't have the capacity to engage. So even though we were doing online Zoom sessions about this thing that we had happening, we couldn't stop everything. Like work still had to go on. Everybody was doing their best, but people didn't have the time or space or mental capacity to engage and join another Zoom meeting at the end of the day. And so it was a real fine balance around what work did we choose to move forward in a time when we knew our ability to engage our community and our citizenship was limited, and so that—that that I think is a real thing that I've been reflecting on over our like why this term I think felt so challenging. Um, there's many other reasons as well, but I think that was one of them. Is I didn't run into you. I mean, I live a half block down and we didn't run into each other at the general store or at the coffee shop i couldn't like somebody couldn't come up to me in the grocery store and be like hey what's happening with that and like there was no chance to correct the record off the cuff
0: so for the in- interest of time here we're going to move into the, the rapid fire and it's, it's it's not really rapid fire it's more like i'm going to throw out a topic at you and you kind of give me a synopsis this uh, is
2: good practice for the monday all candidates meeting
0: i'm going to be at that one Great. that's going to be fun downtown densification we've talked about it but do you think the rate is good too fast or we're planning well enough
2: i think we can always do better
0: that's good that's actually shorter than i was expecting but it's okay
2: <laughs> do you want me to elaborate no <laughs> that's fine rapid fire we can't fire. So we that's can't we literally literally she's rapid, rapid
0: fire
1: and back at you it's now. literally rapid fire. i like <laughs> that quick learner this is the this is the
0: reason she's where she is probably uh transit <laughs> We need to we, do more. Where are we sitting on transit? I know the municipalities are kind of together. Like, yes,
2: yeah, but... Yeah, so transit both... So our local transit system is, is paid for 53% by the municipality, 47% by the province. Ideally, regional transit to some degree will be cost-shared as well. So it requires partnership, and partnership takes time, and it takes everybody being at the same spot at the same time. We have made... I think, significant strides with the local government partners throughout the corridor. So we have created a regional transit committee that has representation from Squamish Nation, Lillawatt Nation, District of Squamish, Resort Municipality of Whistler, Pemberton, and the Squamish Lillawatt Regional District, which is fantastic. I think to have a successful regional transit system, we need all of those players at the table because it needs to service all of us, and we all need to be there. We are stalled at trying to figure out what the best funding model is with the province. We did propose a gas tax, or at least taking mm, what is being taxed sorry, of us. Sorry.
0: I'm just, already. I, anytime you mention taxes, I'm
2: going to go boom. That's fair. <laughs> but we're already paying them at the pump. True uh, enough. So why don't we get uh, what Vancouver is getting, which is 14 to 15 cents per liter, uh, which we are paying to the gas we're, stations We're paying right anyway, now. I know. Yeah. So let's collect that and apply it to our regional transit system. That has not gone over with the province yet. For some reason, they keep telling us that that is a dying tax because we are shifting away from gas vehicles to electric vehicles. I said, that's a future us problem. We should just take the money while we have it to get our transit system off the ground and then deal with that at a later date. They didn't see that that was a good approach yet. So we continue to advocate. So at the start of this month, there was a Union of BC Municipalities meeting at at Ben Whistler, which is our annual nerdy local government conference and uh, we did meet with the minister and and brought this up again and um, hopefully we're getting closer um, but we still didn't get any firm commitment so the the advocacy is strong I think the partnerships within the corridor are as strong as they've ever been uh, both from a local government perspective but also we have the chambers on board like the voices are resonating loud, um, and so I don't think that the province can walk away for that much longer.
0: I'm glad you took the time from the density one to the transit one. There you go. There we go. That's awesome. That works. Um, <laughs> second access into downtown. Um, where we at that? I want timeline.
2: Okay, so we do currently have two accesses to downtown. One is locked because it's the CN rail access. But from an emergency perspective, all of our firefighters have the key. There is a second access in, in, in case of emergency. There is also the vehicle bridge that is planned to connect into what is now called CN Sky or Waterfront Landing. Uh, and that is currently in the budget for 2027. Uh, we are collecting development cost charges. The developers will pay for that bridge uh, over time. And so um, our engineering studies suggest that we won't need it before then. Um, if that changes over time, then we can advance it in the financial plan, but right now it's in our 2027 budget.
0: Uh, I would usually talk about VLA, uh, Garibaldi Estates, but we've kind of covered that in depth. Parking. So,
2: oh yeah, parking. we're
1: downtown. downtown. Downtown, parking. Parking.
2: Oh, one of my favorite topics. Right?
1: I mean, it's yeah. not like we never heard this before. Can't believe I almost forgot parking. Don't yes. ever
2: forget parking. Um,
0: so parkade yes no
2: no parkade no parkade. no i don't think that a parkade is uh financially or fiscally responsible it's extremely expensive and i also don't think we have the land anywhere to put a parkade downtown um i do think that there are other tools and strategies that we can use and so first off i i I always start this off with the fact that i think the parking challenge is a result of the fact that we have more visitors and more people who are enjoying our downtown like Five years ago, you could find parking because our downtown wasn't as vibrant as it is today. So we haven't, it's a challenge for sure, but it's a challenge as a result of some really positive things that have been happening. And so in this current budget right now for the 2022 year, I did put forward a motion that uh, $20,000 into the budget to do a parking utilization study and to better understand what sort of parking demand management tools we could use to uh, address the parking issue. So we're doing the research right now that is meant to be completed by the end of this year. Uh, We just are wrapping up our discussions for the 2023 budget and we just are going to put some money earmarked. So we don't know what those recommendations are yet from that parking utilization study. Uh, I'm not going to guess what they are. I'm not a parking expert, um, but we are earmarking some money in the 2023 budget so that we can implement that.
0: Some of the issues that are, have been expressed is, is mainly people trying to get downtown and find parking that they can't. People who work downtown need to be able to put their cars somewhere. Uh, I always use the story of my of my family doctor, one luckily to have a family doctor where you know he parked outside a medical clinic and getting in trouble with the bylaw because she's been parked there for long the two hours but she has nowhere to put her vehicle and she's on call to go to the hospital Yeah, and not everyone we have
2: since solved that issue for our doctors
0: awesome Yeah, and not everyone can bike or bus totally. into downtown
2: yeah but I will say that every person that does bike or bus into downtown means that there's one extra parking spot for those who can't it has to be a multi-pronged approach right it's like I'm not gonna I'm I'm don't think that everybody needs to get on a bike but I do think if we encourage more people to get on a bike it will alleviate some of the challenge
0: okay uh so garibaldi states we already covered that at length so i guess let's go back to one of those oldie but goodie ones gas
2: garibaldi esquamish yeah Um, We're still talking about it. We're still talking about it. That proposal has been around since the 60s. Yep. And here we are still talking about it. Yep. The proposal, as I said, it's changed many times since the 60s. And I don't actually think I've seen an updated version of what they have. Uh, This question, I feel like, is a very large one with so little information that I'm generally not supportive of it, mostly because it's outside of our district boundary. And so um, we would have to extend not just our growth management boundary, which is an ROCP, but our municipal boundary, which... Has a huge amount of financial risk to it. Like, if they get halfway through their development and then abandon ship, like, we're responsible for all those stranded assets. Like, that puts up a lot of alarm bells for me. Um, And then the other piece of it is because it's outside our municipal boundary, their first step as a project is actually to go through the regional district. So, they need a, we have an, an official community plan here at the District of Squamish. At the regional district level, they have a regional growth strategy they would need an amendment to the regional growth strategy first. So that's a regional district issue. We do have representation on the regional district board. I am one of the members of the board at the moment, but that's the first place that they need to go. And so I actually think our community does need to spend time on talking about this topic until they get further down the process.
0: Perfect, we're talking about boundaries now. So Crumpet Woods.
2: North Crumpet? North Crumpet is within the growth management boundary. They are going through a neighborhood planning process as we spoke about earlier. Mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing, that recently came to council, I look forward to seeing a more comprehensive plan that helps to balance the ecological and recreational values in that space with more diversified housing than what we've currently seen in the proposed project.
0: Outside of the growth boundaries, Chima, Chima lands.
2: Yeah, so I think the Chima lands, to me, the biggest issue is that they are outside of the growth management boundary. I am supportive of the growth management boundary that is in the official community plan. That doesn't mean that the Chima lands won't ever get developed. They are slated for future residential. There's a list of policies in the OCP that need to be met before we consider extending the growth management boundary. And one of the reasons why I'm hesitant to do that is I think if we don't have our house in order as a district before we start that process, and we risk doing duplicative work both as a district and for the proponent. Other reason is that Hachima lands are not the only folks that are right outside our growth management boundary who are interested in developing. And so if we're going to look at extending our growth management boundary, I think we need to have a more fulsome conversation with our community around what that looks like. And it's not just our community because one of the biggest fee simple landholders both within the district, but right outside of our growth management boundary is the Squamish Nation. And so I think from that perspective, I would rather spend our time really focusing on extensive dialogue with them around what their vision is for how this community develops over time and what their needs and wants are so that we can have a more joint vision for what that looks like.
0: 60% of your budget is coming out of property taxes. Provincial average is 48%. So a lot of the pool is from our property taxes. We need to diversify the economy. Where should we be diversifying and how?
2: Yeah, we should be uh, advancing. We have our emerging sector uh, action plan from our economic development team, which focuses on uh, green technology, rec tech, uh, sustainable hospitality and tourism as our emerging sectors, Uh, and then uh, some of our enabling and supporting sectors as well in our community. And so I think really following that guide, I think economic development is a challenging one because it's a combination of taking advantage of the, the opportunities that come up when they come up and being ready for them.
0: What is their timeline, though? Are we are we seeing do we have space for them to come in first and foremost? And and do we see a big injection or diversification within your next purview or are we looking down further down the road?
2: I certainly hope so. I think that we've been doing a lot of work in terms of like what we call cluster development for those key sectors. Um, And so that includes doing the land analysis or economic uh, land study. Employment Land Study. Thank you. That's the one Um, to really identify where those lands are, where we need to expand those lands. The B.C. rail lands is a really good opportunity to make more efficient use of that industrial space, which is where we see actually a significant amount of the crunch for those larger, higher tax rate payers, uh, like the industrial folks that we need to come in to help balance our, our tax base. And so I think we've been doing a lot of the groundwork there. And there are some exciting things that are kind of just on the horizon that I think will enable us to attract uh, some of those larger businesses.
0: Well, you know, there's a tax injection out there on the water. LNG. Mm-hmm. Where are we sitting with LNG?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you should ask Wood Fiber. <laughs> Is that a fair response? Get out of here. Go ask them. Yeah. Go ask them. No, right. to be fair, and I mean, I said this four years ago. I. I am not supportive of the wood fiber project, but I'm not gonna get in the way of trying to get the best deal for this community. I am a pragmatist that that project Has been approved by other levels of government and it's going ahead so i'm happy to sit at the table we've been we've been trying uh we've directed our staff to negotiate a tax agreement and we aren't there yet yeah where's wood fiber
0: with the temporary use permits for their floating hotels because or all that sort of stuff
2: yeah so the temporary so the floating hotel is still with the province on an ea amendment Uh, so we haven't seen that work um i think this is really one of the challenges with this project is there's no visibility into when or where they're going to move. And then we have been saying we can try and be as nimble as possible as a local government, um, but we have process. We have due process for a reason. We have to engage our community, especially on temporary use permits for, say, example, a work camp, um, which Fortis is, is proposing now at the 11th hour when we've told them four years ago that they should be building housing and legacy housing in our community and they said oh we're not actually going to need to bring in workers we're going to hire locally but here we are in a labor shortage and we have a 0.4 percent vacancy rate and they don't have anywhere to house their 600 workers that they are now bringing in and they say we need to build a work camp to start work in the spring of 2024 and our processes don't move that quickly and we've been trying to tell them this for four years Still, they come in at the 11th hour with all these requests. And so I think that there's just a challenge here. And I'm, I'm disheartened by the lack of respect that these large corporations have come into our community with. I think that we deserve better. Um, And they keep on kind of acting as if we just need to roll over and take it because they've already been approved. But I I don't think that's fair to our community that they are going to have impact on our community. And so I think that we continue to have to come to the table in good faith that they will eventually step up.
1: You spoke before uh, with respect to creating dialogue and relationships with the Squamish Nation. Currently, there is no intergovernmental accord between the Squamish Nation and the District of Squamish. No active working document that formalizes the roles and responsibilities from each side to extend that one step further. There's not been a services agreement with the District of Squamish and the Squamish Nation. But for one mayor, we've never had an intergovernmental accord. What can we do to broach that gap?
2: Yeah, thank you for the question. I think it's a really important one. We didn't get the agreement signed in this past term, but we have been building a strong relationship with the nation, both at an elected level, at a staff level, which I think is really a a better starting place for how that agreement should come together. And so the Squamish Nation has gone also through quite a bit of governance changes over the last little while. They uh, went through an election last year and they dropped their... Elected council from sixteen down to eight. They have been doing a lot of work internally, um, as they say, to set their own table. And so, I don't think it's fair for us to go forward and say, "Hey, we want a de- we want an accord. We want an agreement. We want an accord so that we can understand how to work better with you." We've been asked and told by the nation to wait, please, while we sort out our own things, and then we can come to you when we're ready. So, they are actually going through an entire process right now. The Squamish Nation has 18 local governments that touch their traditional territory. And so I'm always extremely cognizant that we are one of 18 plus, plus, plus who are constantly vying for a place at their table. And so they've asked us to to wait so that they could create a system that works for them. And that's where we're at. We're waiting. Um, they are developing a system that will be kind of a, a three-level hierarchy of a development, a protocol agreement, followed by a memoram, memorandum of understanding and then a servicing agreement below that. Um, that will kind of outline the five-year, like the, the long-term vision at the protocol agreement side, the MOE would be like a five-year vision and the servicing agreement would kind of be the year to year. So that is, that's work that's underway on their side and we are ready to participate in that process when they ask us to. But that doesn't mean that that work, that really important work on reconciliation hasn't been happening both within the district, it's something that we have prioritized for our staff, for council to do the learning, the important learning and understanding of the impacts of colonization um, so that our staff can be more cognizant of the role that they hold and, and the work that they can do to make this a more inclusive space um, and how we can really right some of the wrongs of the past. And I think we have seen some really tangible action out of that in this past term uh, so we have some really important projects that we've actually been able to work together on with the with the Squamish Nation. Uh, one example is the dike uh, at the Eagle Viewing or CHM Reserve. Uh, there, that's a multi-year process to think about how we can upgrade that dike, and the proposal that we have both landed on that has been approved by the District Councils. Uh, the, sorry, the District of Squamish Council and the Squamish Nation Council was the option that preserved and potentially will regain additional lands for the CHM reserve that were historically taken away with the way that the river has has flowed and so that's one example of of quite a few where we've actually seen what I think is more meaningful progress than just signing an agreement accord not to say that that's not important but I think we're doing the groundwork to build the foundation that we need for a really solid long-lasting relationship and that doesn't happen overnight.
0: This is the point in time in the podcast where you can give us your spiel, platform piece, and if we miss something that you want to discuss, and how we can get in touch with you.
2: All right, that was a very extensive and fulsome conversation. Yeah. So thanks for that. Uh, I want to thank you guys again for doing this work. It is really important uh, way for the voters to hear a little bit more, and I know it's a lot of volunteer time on your guys' end and. Uh, I think that's what makes our community so strong is the folks who are willing to step up and put the time in to create community and, and learning and understanding amongst all of us. I'm going to save you from my platform spiel. I, As I said at the beginning, it's been such a pleasure to serve in this role over the last four years, and I really do think that I have a lot of experience to bring to the table, continuity of work. Um, I may differ with you on where we stand on a few policy pieces, but I'm always open to conversation, and I think... Uh, As even said at the beginning, respectful dialogue is something that I think is most critical around the table. And so when you go to the polls on October 15th um, or before that, there are six advanced voting opportunities. I hope people really reflect on that and, and what they've heard from people and the standard that they've been willing to hold during the campaign. And I think transparency in your campaign is so important because I think your campaign reflects how you will act around the council table. And our community is smart, they're engaged, and I look forward to seeing who they pick uh, after October 15th. But you can find me at JennaStoner.com uh, is my website. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, but Jenna Stoner, you'll find me.
0: Thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you for the kind words. And uh, good luck. Good thank luck, you very good luck.
2: much. Appreciate it.
1: Good job. That was excellent. <laughs>
2: This is the Sea to Sky Podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at podcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky Podcast. Thank you for clicking us on.